Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Today's guest is Professor Daniel Francis, an assistant professor at NYU School of Law, where he specializes in regulation and competition, particularly in complex and high-tech markets. Daniel shares his insights on two proposed pieces of Senate legislation, the Open App Markets Act, known as OAMA, and the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, or ICOA, that Senator Klobuchar recently reintroduced. As a former federal antitrust enforcer, Daniel addresses his concerns around the potential of unintended harms these legislation proposals could create by limiting several current practices that currently benefit consumers, such as bundling services, integrating features, pre-installing apps, and the limiting of the vetting process for a more secure consumer experience. Daniel and I discuss his recent Senate testimony where he explains how these two legislative efforts could open companies to potential scrutiny for anti-competitive behavior and cause regulatory uncertainty in the technology industry, with legislation bringing forward the prospects of investigations, large penalties, extensive litigation, possible injunctions, as well as executive compensation cuts that could deter companies from continuing to implement many of these consumer-friendly tools. Prior to his academic career, Daniel served as deputy director of the Federal Trade Commission's Bureau of Competition, managing a wide array of the FTC's antitrust enforcement and policy activities, with a focus on high technology and platform markets. He has also practiced antitrust law for over 10 years in multinational law firms in Washington, D.C., New York, and Brussels. Daniel most recently co-authored a casebook on antitrust law that will be out this fall. Join us for this insightful and thought-provoking discussion on the proposed legislation and its potential implications for technology platforms, consumers, and the growth of the technological landscape going forward. Daniel, thank you for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed your testimony before the Senate. You had, did a great job. I know it was, a, it was a long day up there, but you really, you kept the attention of the senators, which I've watched a lot of testimony, and that's highly unusual. But let's start with just why, why were you there? Tell us about your time at the Federal Trade Commission and what you're doing now up at NYU Law School. So I had the honor of a lifetime to serve at the FTC uh, between 2018 and 2021 in a series of roles, sort of most latterly as deputy director of the Bureau of Competition. And in addition to my day job, kind of managing investigations and litigations, uh, my work throughout that time at the FTC had a focus on digital and platform antitrust, including not just policy, but also uh, enforcement work as well. So that has kind of motivated a pretty deep interest that I have now that I'm an academic teaching here at NYU in a variety of aspects of tech competition, competition policy, so not just the application of our antitrust laws, the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, the FTC Act, to practices and transactions in what we might think of as tech markets, but also that broader category of measures that we might think about or enact for reasons of competition policy, including digital platform regulation. And, I, and I'm so excited to know that the Federal Trade Commission has been in that space and thinking about it. Are, do you feel like that's still going on? Is it since you left, your colleagues still hopefully thinking about the digital economy? 
So I don't think there's any doubt right now that digital antitrust is high on the radar of both the Department of Justice and the FTC and a great many state attorney generals too. One thing I will say is, you know, although it's more prominent on the news agenda these days, tech antitrust and the application of antitrust rules to high-tech markets, markets where IP and innovation are crucial, this is something that's been going on in the United States and around the world for many, many years, right? The you know, many of the big antitrust cases of the 20th century dealt with products or services or firms that were in some sense at the forefront of technology and the iconic Microsoft litigation and decision of the DC circuit. That was now more than, what, 22 years ago that that decision came down with the investigation starting of Microsoft in the 90s. So for a very long time, for multiple decades, not just scholars, but antitrust enforcers as well have been thinking very hard about some of these puzzles of digital competition policy. So do you think it's we need to keep it industry-specific, or is that just because tech is so prevalent right now in today's economy? So I think I think about the whole thing slightly differently from the way that question might suggest. So I don't really believe there's a single industry that it's helpful for regulatory purposes to think of as a tech industry. I think an e-commerce platform looks very different, both technologically and commercially and in its place in society, from a search engine or from a social network or an email platform or a ride-sharing platform or a handheld device architecture. And sometimes one of the things that troubles me about some aspects of the tech policy conversation, particularly as it shows up in antitrust and competition policy, is the idea that, oh... Because these companies, which is an expression I hear again and again, are all large, have some platform dynamics in some important ways, and play important roles in our shared life, that they therefore present a set of common problems for antitrust or for regulation, and that they're best approached with a set of common solutions. And I just don't see much of a reason to think that's right. Antitrust's great virtue is its neutrality. We have these three great pillars of our antitrust system, a rule against agreements that restrain trade, a rule against unilateral conduct by monopolists that excludes competition, and a rule against anti-competitive mergers and acquisitions. And those three rules in their heart are exactly the same whether we're talking about a market for social networking services or a market for spoons. But when we move outside of that almost constitutionally general antitrust conversation and we start thinking about creating specific sectoral obligations, well, then we have to take a much more granular look. And then we have to start thinking, gosh, what's the problem in this market? What's the problem in this corner of the economy? What are we really worried about? What's the evidence showing us about something that's really going wrong in this space? And what's it suggesting about an alternative that really would be better for society? And there's no way to have that conversation, at least no way that I know about, that isn't really granular, industry by industry, market by market. When the um, legislation in question came out, the um, Alcoa and Awama, we'll call it for the moment, uh, they uh, 
it really just sort of surprised me as I thought, well, some of these just seem like arbitrary numbers they were coming up with, like, you know, these thresholds. And I kept thinking about, you know, funny, Target doesn't fit in there. Uh, you know, we, certain things that, you know, if you, and they, or Walmart for that case, who has a very strong uh, digital presence. People don't tend to think of them as where you go to do online shopping, but they, they have a gigantic, but yet they get carved out by this particular number that's chosen there. And that just seems not right to me. I deeply share that sense. I mean, I don't think anyone has any theory of what makes these numbers sort of sensible or non-arbitrary other than the jurisdictional bounds of ICO are pretty clearly drawn with a set of companies in mind. Well, what do they have in common? Well, they all run platform businesses of various kinds, although many of them have businesses that don't look very much like platforms as well. And they're politically unpopular in a very distinctive way at the minute. So I'd be the first person to say that because many of the markets we might naturally think of as digital platform markets are really important, they really matter to all of us, it's super important both that we have vigorous antitrust enforcement to make sure that we don't see common or garden monopolization or bad mergers. That's super important. We might also want pretty carefully framed, targeted, industry-specific regulation. But the idea that the right toolkit for thinking about Amazon and businesses like it would be the same as the right toolkit for thinking about Apple or Google, I can't think of any reason to think that that's right. And that's one of the things that troubles me about the approach to regulation that bundles together a bunch of companies just because they're big. That's not something we've ever really done in the United States. You, in your testimony, which I highly recommend everyone read, it's every fun. It's just fun reading. But um, it's 135 they, pages. I know. I'm I, not you sure you act like I haven't read it a couple that. times. Seriously, <laughs> I'm, it's like you know, I'm, I woke up and read it again this morning. So, um, but you talk about, um, and I love it. It says you kind of many desirable practices that come along with self-preferencing, which people don't tend to think about it that way. But I mean, like, I, well, I think so. Going away from the digital market for a second. I, when I go out to visit my dad, like he loves nothing more than to go to Costco. And the Costco game is, what are you really buying, right? Like you buy Costco golf balls. You're like, are they Titleist? Are they Callaway? Or, you know, the the bourbon of choice right now. We think Maker's Mark's making it. You know, like it just becomes this game to be like, how much am I sharing by not putting, I mean, how much am I saving by having Costco on like, it? But you also, you know, so you talk about self-preferencing as not necessarily bad, but actually having some net positives, especially if it's in a, you know, an area like, iOS, where I'm an, I'm an admitted Apple user, everybody knows that about me, but, um, you know, like there's certain things that I want to work that need to be incorporated neatly. And a part of that is also a security element because I was just reading the iOS 17, you know, what came out um, recently and at their developers conferences, they're designed to, you know, integrate nicely with each other and breaking that for the sake of being pouty and mad, it seems like a not nice thing to do to consumers. Yeah, so you you raise ICO. I mean, at at ten thousand feet, there's there's a couple things we might say, and obviously this is a long piece of legislation, has many provisions. You know, there's a really granular discussion to be had. But in its heart, I understand ICO as really being about two things. Thing number one is presumptively forbidding self-preferencing by big platforms, and then thing number two is presumptively requiring certain kinds of access and interoperability by the platforms with a pretty limitless array of third parties. So I look at that first one, the idea that there's something presumptively wrong with self-preferencing, and I, I don't see it. I don't understand what the basis is for concluding that more often than not, 
that's something that's bad rather than good for consumers. Let's think about what's involved. That's any time that the operator or owner of a platform uses it to integrate in a better way, promote in a better way, synchronize in a better way with some other product or service that's wanted by a consumer. So that could be integrating functions, right? Like you're on Google search, running a search, here are some results, and here's information from Google Maps that pertains to what you want. It could be pre-installing applications or programs, right? You buy an iPhone, you buy a Windows PC, what you're getting out of the box isn't a bare, empty architecture. It has a bunch of Apple apps pre-installed on it. It has a bunch of Microsoft applications pre-installed on it. That's obviously good for users. Bundling things together, right? When you subscribe to Amazon Prime, you're getting not only access to certain kinds of shipping and fulfillment services from Amazon, but you're getting access to streaming music and streaming movies as a result. The idea that practices like this should be even presumptively illegal strikes me as completely wild. So that's kind of part one, the reason why I don't understand why we would think it's a good idea to presumptively forbid self-preferencing. The other side is this access and interoperability thing. So you mentioned security, and I think you're exactly right to do that. So the problem, as I see it at least, with creating these very broad obligations of access and interoperability is that the world out there is full of a bunch of low-quality, dangerous, malicious, hostile actors and code and apps that for sure are better being kept away from consumers and the products they use. Now, right now, it's in the interests of anyone who runs a platform, whether it's Google, Apple, or anyone else, to protect their users by denying requests for access or interoperability or access to data or access to your camera or your microphone from that limitless group of third parties. Legislation that comes along and says, hey, if you do this, number one, it's only going to be legal if you can prove you meet some very narrow, very demanding set of circumstances. And if it turns out a court disagrees with you, you're going to be facing fines injunctions, long, costly investigations, maybe even the loss of your own personal compensation as an executive who takes that decision, there's only one direction in which that moves outcomes. That is a big, big thumb on the scales in favor of forcing open the gates to play such a crucial role in keeping bad actors, low-quality, or even hostile and malicious code away from consumers' devices and out of their homes. So both with respect to the self-preferencing pillar and with respect to the access and interoperability pillar, I think in its heart, this is just aimed in the wrong direction. And I don't think that's the right path for digital platform regulation to follow. Yeah, when I think about consumer harm, I like the idea that you're saying, you know, thumb on the scale, because you think there's supposed to be a balance there. Like, is there something I'm missing out because of the way that this is designed? And, you know, yeah, I, I... I chose, I mean, I realize part of the challenge with tech is it's plug and play. And so people tend not to even know the decisions they pre-made when they bought something. But you don't know what you have been saved from being harmed by, which is always the cybersecurity challenge, right? They don't know. You're like, I've stopped all these things at the gate. And people are like, what? They didn't know it even existed because they were never harmed by it. That is such a wonderful way to put it. Like, imagine, imagine that 
any business had even a presumptive right to sell baby food, right, or children's products on the shelves of Walmart, and that if Walmart wanted to keep baby food from some totally unregulated manufacturer off their shelves, or wanted to say, no, 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 we're not going to sell this product for children, Walmart had to jump over these incredibly burdensome hoops and face these really dramatic threats, the world would be up in arms about the threat that would obviously represent. Yeah, that's it's it's an interesting thing. So we're going to do we're going to use your little lawyer brain here for a second because there are certain things that you talked about that I still am sort of struggling with, which is the, the affirmative defense that's in there. I just I feel like it's a positive. You're explaining a positive negative. So can you just walk us through that because I don't really understand what happens there and why they would put this in this legislation? Absolutely. So the you know it's a good thing in principle to have a defense, given my concerns about the overbreadth and overreach of these rules, I certainly prefer a version that has affirmative defenses to those that don't. But I look at what's in, and let's, you know, focus on ICOA, because that's the sort of central pillar of this program. I look at that affirmative defense, and I see something that's too narrow, and something that's too demanding. So there's no defense under ICOA on the ground that what's restricted was just a really bad product, or that it was full of spam or intrusive advertising, or it was full of false or objectionable or explicit content, or it was just too expensive to integrate into the system. Now, there is a defense in there for product improvement. There's room for a platform to say, well, hang on a minute, our self-preferencing here is a kind of product improvement, but they only get to make that argument if what's being improved is a core product function. If you're trying to improve a non-core function, then there's no defense. And you don't get the defense at all if what you're trying to do could be done in a less discriminatory way. Even if doing that would be unprofitable and no rational business would ever do it, if that possibility exists, no defense. So setting aside the fact that Relying on any affirmative defense means spending a whole bunch of time and money and incurring risk in the hope that at the end of the day, a court will agree with you that you satisfy the conditions. What's going on here is much too narrow. I think about my iPhone, right? My iPhone has a flashlight and a digital camera integrated into it. That is obviously a product improvement, right? My life is made better by the fact that this is carrying a flashlight and a digital camera. Now, is that bad for third-party flashlight and digital camera manufacturers who never got an opportunity to be on the platform? Sure it is, but it's great for consumers. And so when I think about that as a kind of paradigmatic product improvement, the integration of complementary products that's so good for consumers, that's what I have in my mind when I look at an affirmative defense in something like ICOA. And so to see the idea that, well, the only product improvements we're going to permit as a defense to these very broad duties is something that's the core function of your product, no one would say the core function of a cell phone is a flashlight or a digital camera. So to my mind, that's such a crystal clear, simple example of why such a narrow, such a constrained affirmative defense does really very little to allay the concerns that these very broad, dramatic obligations would impose. I, I think my niece might 
not agree because somebody tried to hand her a flashlight over Christmas and she did not know what it was. She was That's like, amazing. Why would you have a flashlight that's not part of your phone? She thought it was nuts. Um, so you also just talk about the term harm to competition and as it's mentioned in the bill and how you're concerned about the clarity of the, that you really was like, it sounds like there's a lot of definitional things that you would probably correct in this bill. That's exactly right. I mean, anytime you're introducing a dramatic new regulatory regime, you want to have some sense about how it's going to shake out. And definitions of central terms are step 101 in, in bringing that to ground. So what troubles me about harm to competition in ICOA is that the way it's set up basically allows defenders of the bill to say two totally different things to people who expect and want very different outcomes from this legislation. So to some people who want very dramatic change in competition policy in tech markets, um, there's a pretty prominent theme in a lot of the talk around the bill that, oh, ICOA is going to be a huge improvement over existing antitrust enforcement. It's going to stay out of all those messy, fact-specific, expert-driven economic complexities that make antitrust litigation so hard. We're not going to have to agonize, as we do in antitrust litigation, often for years, about who's in or out of the market, about what harmful economic effects might be expected, about what economic benefits might be yielding. So ICOA is being offered as something that is on this much faster track with these much simpler rules compared to antitrust enforcement. To people like me who look at ICOA and see something that's sort of much too crude and likely to do a lot of social harm, we're often being told, well, don't worry, there's this concept of harm to competition in the bill, and that's going to ensure that what happens here is pretty similar to antitrust, where in antitrust enforcement, at least in recent decades, things are only you know, held to be harmful to competition if they're harmful to consumer welfare overall, if they're socially damaging on net. Now, both of those things can't be true, right? If we're going to have uh, an ICOA that is tethered to economic conceptions of harm, really making sure that it's not going to prohibit beneficial practices, then it's going to run through all those detailed economic questions that make antitrust litigation slow and complicated. And if that's not what's intended at all, if this is a clean reset and a very different project, then these cases will for sure run a lot faster and be a lot easier than antitrust cases. But we're going to get the kind of overreach and the kind of consumer harm that I feel, that I fear rather. So this notion of harm to competition in the bill creates this kind of strategic ambiguity between the two worlds. On the one hand, it could mean overall harm to consumer welfare. And if that was put in the bill, that would allay many, but not all, of my concerns. But doing that means it wouldn't bring a revolution in competition policy for digital platforms. So to my mind, having this concept of harm to competition, as if there's something that it that competition just is, as if there's this unitary index that everyone knows and understands, just isn't true. If it's supposed to mean welfare harms, if it's supposed to mean the kind of practices that the antitrust laws would prohibit, then it's got to say so on its face, because it sure looks like an effort to do something dramatically different. So stepping away from Congress for a second here uh, and going across the pond, your former agency has now sent people to Brussels to help 
help them with, encourage European style law back in the United States, which seems like a little crazy to me. But you know, following the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Service Act, the Data Act, the you know now AI Act, which is about coming around. You know, we for a long time, for somebody who's been doing regulation in Washington, you got used to saying, "Well, let the Europeans play around." They never quite get anything finished, right? Or it never really kind of comes this direction. But the idea that we now are sending U.S. government officials over to Brussels to be like, "Let's help you figure this out, so you can bring it back to the United States." What do you think about that? That's interesting. So my hot take on that is that for a very, very long time, antitrust enforcers have been cooperating and exchanging ideas and putting their heads together on cases, not only in tech, but to a very significant extent in tech. That, to my mind, is a practice that's been comfortably in place for 20, 25 years and some. On balance, I think it's a good and healthy thing for antitrust enforcers to be talking to each other and exchanging ideas. What's very interesting, and is kind of an inversion of the way that things were, you know, maybe 20 years ago, is that there's a real tone in the U.S. national discourse of, gosh, look at what the European folks are doing. We should be catching up. We should be emulating them. We should be adapting our regulatory framework to do something similar. That is most clear with respect to the Digital Markets Act, which has recently come into force in the European Union. And we're going to learn a whole lot over the next couple of years just from watching that glorious natural experiment play out. So I believe that the content of the Digital Markets Act will probably do more harm than good for reasons that overlap a lot with my concerns about ICOA. But we are all going to learn a lot about the concrete effects of that kind of regulation just by watching what happens in the European Union over the next couple of years. So I think that creates a great opportunity for U.S. regulators, legislators, policymakers, academics like me to just watch, to make sure that we are taking every opportunity to learn as much as we can about what's happening in Europe, how companies are reacting, what it's doing to their you know, product development or innovation behavior, what differences we see between what's going on in Europe and what's happening in the United States. That's a once-in-a-generation regulatory learning opportunity. <laughs> so to my mind, the wise path is to let that happen. Yeah, it, it, you're not picking up the tab. You know, you think it's the the amount of money. I love it how like the Europeans are like we're not this. What, we weren't expecting the windfall of billions of dollars. Now that we're <laughs> you're like, we're just looking to like kind of straighten out some things, and along the way we realized we actually have a, a gigantic money making operation that they've gotten into, and we might want to you know I, we're seeing the first rounds of uh, you know privacy law. I always say it's, it's, I prefer we call it data uh, because it's not really privacy, but um, you know here in the United States as well. And so it's it's becoming a very interesting way of managing people forward. Um, and I think with artificial intelligence really coming into its own right now, it's going to be fascinating to see how. To your point of like, does do they augment the way the technology works because they want to avoid any sort of regulatory morass, or you know, do we end up? With this whole idea of like licensing from the get-go because, you know, we want to know the hard edge, where are the, the bumper guards on what's going on. So yeah. fascinating is one way to put it. <laughs> Expensive for some people I think might be <laughs> another. But Absolutely. But look, there's no cheap way to do any of this, right? There are really big harms and benefits on every side of the ledger. I, I believe what I believe, but, you know, we're all largely trading on our priors and our gut and our balance of personal experiences and intuitions. And any opportunity to learn from 
how, you know, the application of real regulations in real markets, like that, if nothing else, is a tremendous opportunity to shape wiser policy. So as much as I, if I were waving a magic wand, might have wished for a different shape of regulation in the European Union, I am deeply looking forward to seeing what happens when the Digital Markets Act, you know, really is up and running and, and figuring out whether I was right or wrong about some of my intuitions about obligations of this kind. Sounds like you're going to really appreciate the professorial role during all of this. <laughs> it's a great Look, time kids. to be an antitrust nerd. Look what's going on over here. Oh, that's not going to go well, but let's watch that car crash go on. <laughs> Fascinating. Do you think a lot of the underlying laws will get challenged? Uh, help me understand your question. Do you mean well, I guess, in the I, I, I'm thinking actually broader than um, antitrust right now, but I feel like we're seeing the underpinning of a lot of things that have we're bumping up against with this, especially this current administration. So I know um, a lot of my friends who do like Chevron deference, uh, you know, watching what's going on with West Virginia and EPA, and now that's got the knock-on effects of um, the cybersecurity law and how they are saying, you know, they're they're, put, they're putting. They're putting regulations onto the states, that that type of thing. You know, we're going to probably spend a lot of time observing that as well. I think that's one reason why congressional action has been such a focus of the sort of the movement towards competition policy reform in digital platforms. The, you know, scope for, let's say, the FTC to issue competition rules, right, that affect digital platforms is deeply contested. There's, you know, the the question of whether the FTC has competition rulemaking powers at all is a very vexed and uncertain one. My bet is at the end of the day, the courts say, no, that power doesn't exist, but that's, I'm sure something we'll learn soon enough. Um, so I think the fact that the scope for unilateral agency action is so limited is one reason why the Federal Congress is bearing so much of the load on figuring out what to do about digital platforms. And that's probably a really good thing, right? For all that's wrong with the federal legislative process, Congress is there to be this great refracting prison to bring together views and ideas and objectives and intuitions and values and experiences about how we want to regulate our shared life. And that is exactly what the platform regulation conversation is and should be. So let's see what emerges. We know that antitrust legislation often takes some years to come together. I'm sure we haven't heard the last of measures of this kind. So what do you have on the horizon? Uh, so I just had a antitrust casebook uh, launch last month, which was... Uh, nice to see it sort of uh, launch in the world. My co-author, Chris Brigman, is my colleague here at NYU, and we think this is the first U.S. antitrust law casebook that's completely free to students and teachers. It was published by the ABA. Uh, you can get it as a free download, or you can get it a hard copy for whatever it costs to print, which I think is about $16 on Amazon. Um, so that's kind of wonderful to have that out the door. Is it, is it going to be dynamic? Uh, it is extremely dynamic. Uh, in well, I mean, a variety I don't mean reading it, but I mean, I'm sure it is, and I, I'm sure I look forward to taking a look at it. But I, I, uh, Jim Dempsey, who's out at Berkeley, actually has a cybersecurity uh, book that he says once you, you buy the hard copy, you, he's going to keep it updated as they continue to change the laws around this. So I'm just wondering 
if this is the new way we do textbooks, so they don't ever really go out of, you get to be per in perpetuity, kind of. You know? It's certainly the way we're doing it. So the world will get a fresh new edition every summer because we're not working with a publisher. I mean, we were, you know, distributing direct to the world, so it will freshen up automatically. Uh, at the, well, I say automatically. We have to do a is bunch of work. Is it going to be like you. my iOS update is going to tell me that I have a new <laughs> book? It's like you, there's new court case here. I push here. You're going to get a, you know. It's going to be much simpler than that. You're going to be able to get a new PDF every year from antitrustcasebook.org uh, with a whole bunch of other materials available there as well. Um, I'm working on an article at the minute about the role of competition uh, as, a, as an idea in moral philosophy, as an idea in economic theory and its place in antitrust. Uh, and I'm looking forward to spending some time next month in Japan, in Kyoto, uh, working mm -hmm. on some uh, tech regulatory policy issues with some friends and colleagues out there. So it's a, it's a busy summer, but uh, an exciting one. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for your time today being a guest on Explain to Shane. It's been really wonderful. The honor has been mine. Thanks for having me on, and it's been lovely to talk with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.